Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we revisit the three-part California Adapt series, and this is the final episode in that series. On occasion, I go back to the archive and share what I think are really great episodes. Maybe you missed it the first time it came out. My listener base has grown since this originally aired, and I'd like to bring some episodes up front and center in case you haven't explored the archive. This was a very unusual episode for me. I was able to travel all over the state of California, interviewing experts and Californians who are helping their state adapt to climate change. It was a fun and epic journey. The first episode was a history of environmental issues in California, so we could ground you in how the state has responded to environmental issues in the past. In the second episode, we explored the five most important elements of climate adaptation, fire, drought, flood, temperature, and sea level rise. And finally, in this third and final episode, we take a look at how the state is doing overall on climate adaptation. In my original introduction that follows, you'll get more background on who sponsored this and what we were trying to accomplish. I hope you enjoy the re-release of this series. If you haven't listened to the first two, please go back and check them out. California is ground zero for the impacts of climate change, and the more the state starts talking about and acting on this issue, the more it will be ready to adapt. I hope you enjoyed this final episode in this three-part series. Episode 3, time to make some sense of what we heard. Fire, drought, flood, heat, sea level rise. California is facing a lot of challenges with the changing climate. We're going to do some processing. But first, a little aside. What if we could stop the changes? What if we could play God and control our own climate? This concept is called geoengineering. Seems like a simple solution to the entire problem, but is it really that simple? Holly Buck is with the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability, working on the interface between environmental science and society. She studies exactly this, the idea of engineering the climate. Holly, what exactly are you working on? So my current research project is about um, what kind of strategies we could use to engineer the climate if we were facing a worst-case climate change scenario. And so... Basically, climate engineering falls into two categories. There's technologies that people are developing to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And then some other people are thinking about how to reflect incoming sunlight to cool the earth. Sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is also referred to as carbon capture. The process of storing the captured carbon is called sequestration. How's that approach doing? The progress has been really slow on carbon capture and sequestration. You might have heard a lot about that. Um, it's been mostly talked about uh, in terms of retrofitting coal plants. And that technology has been kind of championed over the past decade pretty heavily, but it hasn't gotten anywhere. Um, there's about 15 to 20 uh, plants either operational or coming online in the next year or two. Um, and that's pretty far from where 
climate experts say we need to be in terms of storing carbon. What about reflective particles? Well, in terms of putting particles in the stratosphere, I, I think we've seen a lot more discussion about that recently. The U.S. House of Representatives held, held um, a hearing on it last November. Um, a representative from California, uh, Rep. McNerney, um, actually introduced some legislation in December that would fund research into this um, via the, the National Academies. and. Um, It'll be interesting to see where that research goes. Aren't there some dangers involved with the particles idea? So I would say that that definitely has a lot more risks um, than carbon removal does. So there's a lot of potential negative impacts. Um, I'll just name a, a few of the most glaring ones. Depending on what substance you used for the particles, you could impact the ozone hole recovery. There's also big potential impacts on the hydrological cycle. You would change precipitation patterns. There's also a lot of unknown ecosystem impacts because you'd be changing the amount and type of sunlight coming down to Earth. So that's going to have impacts on plants and animals. Um, it hasn't been well studied. And then there's something called the termination effect. What's that? Once you start putting these particles into the stratosphere, you basically have to keep doing it unless you remove the carbon, which could take, you know, 200 years or so. You're looking at a, lar a long scale intervention. And if you didn't manage to remove that carbon, you're going to be locked into doing this indefinitely because if you stop putting the particles up there, all the warming you've been suppressing suddenly comes at once in, in the, the space of a few years. Um, and whereas some species might be able to adapt to that level of warming over several decades or centuries, if it hits them all at once, including us, uh, it's just there's no way to cope with that. And so the bottom line on geoengineering for now? I don't think it's a great idea, but I have to compare it to the worst case climate change scenario, in which case it's possible that it might help a lot of species. It's possible that it might help vulnerable people. Um, I hope we don't get to that point. I hope we can turn things around. So let's get back to climate adaptation. The changes are coming. Nothing in the near future is going to stop it. But is the public getting ready? And actually, does the public even know how serious the challenges are? A fundamental part of this is communicating what we know. For this topic, it's time for our producer, scientist-turned-filmmaker Randy Olson. He's written three books on science communication and works with scientists and environmental groups. Randy, I'm guessing you've got a few things to say on communication. Yep, thanks, Doug. I've got three things I'd like to talk about. Language, reports, and leadership. Uh, the first one, language. The sort of language that gets used by the climate crowd when they go out to communicate to the general public and when you went to the Hollywood farmer's market, I gave you a few key words that I was interested to hear back what people had to say in response to these key words. And what we heard, especially for the word mitigation, was exactly what I had anticipated. So when I say mitigation, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Blank. Oh, that nothing comes to mind. Uh, I don't know so much about mitigation. Oh, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the average people have no idea what this word mitigation means. I didn't know what it meant up until I started hearing it from climate uh, activists. And that's a problem. The, the movement itself, the climate crowd, from the very beginning has been 
very heavily educated people. And it sort of had to be, because this is a fairly intellectual, cerebral issue, these threats that are 30, 50 years down the line. The general public lives their lives mostly in the here and now, not quite so tuned into things that are not here in the present. And so it makes sense that the heavily educated folks had to provide the leadership and the knowledge to understand these threats. But at the same time, it's very important for them to understand that they are not good at communication as a general rule. I published a book in 2009, Don't Be Such a Scientist, and that was the core point of the book, is that heavily educated people end up sort of sacrificing their ability to communicate effectively. And they just need to have that awareness and work towards that. And so a word like mitigation reflects this entirely. The second main point is reports that get produced. The IPCC, the most important climate organization in the world, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, produces these great big fat reports. And in 2008, a friend of mine, John Sturman at MIT, did a great little experiment. He took 202 science and math graduate students, and he took the executive summary from one of those big reports, which is the two to three paragraphs that are intended to be the translation of everything in this impenetrable report to the public so they can understand what it's about. And he had these graduate students read this executive summary of two to three paragraphs and then explain it in simple terms of what it was about. And it turned out 84% of the students got it wrong when they tried to explain what the report is about because the information in the executive summary itself was presented in such a convoluted, hard to understand manner. So he wrote this up and published it as a short article in Science one of the two most important scientific publications in the world. That was in 2008. You would have hoped that the scientific community would have sat up and said, wow, we've got a big problem here. We need to work harder on this communication stuff. But in fact, in 2015, seven years later, another article came out in Nature, the other most important scientific publication. And that was a study showing that the language of these IPCC reports was actually getting more complicated and more difficult to understand. So the bottom line is that as the climate problems continue to get worse, the communication problems are getting worse. Now, that is the problem. Are there any solutions to this? And I want to mention one thing that is along the lines of a solution that's, I think, very fascinating. It's about the World Bank and a year ago and a little flap that happened there. The World Bank is legendary for what people call bank speak and their complicated, boring language that they use in their reports. And so in 2015, project called the Stanford Literary Lab did a study where they took the annual reports of the World Bank going all the way back to the 1940s and calculated a very simple metric, which is the proportion of all the words in each report that were the word and, A-N-D. That's one of the top three words that gets used day in and day out by everybody conversation. But it's an important word structurally because it's a word of agreement and it's characteristic of non-narrative communication, of people just spewing out information where they're gluing together all these facts and details with the word and. Uh, and here's data on this, and here's a graph of this, and we know this, and we know this, and we know this. So what they found was that in the 1940s, those annual reports tended to have an average of about 2.5% of all the words were the word and. Now that's significant because when you look at material today that is very well edited, for example, a bunch of articles from the New Yorker, you'll find that they converge around that same two and a half percent. But the problem is that these annual reports of the World Bank 
in recent years have drifted all the way up to six to seven percent of the words in the reports are the word and. And that's because they're just piles of information being glued together with this connector word. So a year ago, the chief economist at the World Bank, Paul Romer, uh, read that study from the Stanford Literary Lab and put out an internal memo saying it's time for us to reduce this percentage of the word and in our reports back down to what it was in the old days of two and a half percent. Well, it didn't go over well at all. The old guard basically rose up, got him booted off the committee he was on, and they threw the whole thing out the window, said, you're not going to use that criteria to decide what goes into our reports. Uh, there were a bunch of articles written about it. There was a nice summary article in The Economist in which they kind of had some fun with it. They called it conjunction dysfunction. But it's not a silly topic. This is very important that there are these metrics emerging now that can tell you how unreadable something is. And I would urge everybody involved in these big studies to take your documents and do this simple thing. I did it for some of the California climate reports I found for the last two to three years. And guess what? They were all over 5%. 5% of the words were the word and. It takes you all of about 45 seconds to copy and paste the content of a report into your word processor, search for the word and, divided by the total number of words. So something as simple as that, but it, this is new in just the last few years. And I would hope people will start to pick up on some of these simple metrics that can be done to look at the narrative structure because that's what makes the difference between material being boring and confusing versus interesting. And that then leads to the third topic, which is leadership. The simple rule for leadership is that people follow leaders that are interesting. They don't follow leaders that are boring or confusing. And that's where the state of California has been blessed for decades now to have this amazing leader, Jerry Brown, who has got great narrative strengths. He communicates very effectively. And he's had a vision for the environment going way back. So we heard it from Mary Nichols, the great things she said about when she first met him in 1974. And we also heard it from Felicia Marcus talking about how Jerry Brown for 30 years knew about this problem with the snowpack. And so this is where this word narrative becomes very important. In my book, Houston, We Have a Narrative, I define the word as the series of events that occur in the search for the solution to a problem. And what that means, it's not just about a speech that you give and the narrative structure of the speech. It's also about the strategy you pursue over time. And the idea that you stay focused on this journey that you're on and search for the solution to a problem. And clearly, Jerry Brown has been on that narrative from back in the early 70s. And it's having that longer term narrative strength that allow, has allowed him to stay focused and be as productive as he has been. So those are the three points I wanted to hit on. Now, Doug, I'm interested to hear if you've got a few things to say about your overall impression of what you heard on this journey that you took around California. So I have three th themes, Randy, and I'm going to start off with the first one that you just talked about, leadership. California is living up to its reputation. I saw that firsthand. I talk about California on my podcast quite a bit, not only what they're doing on mitigation, but also on adaptation. And so I remember walking around with Jonathan Parfrey of Climate Resolve, and he, he had his handgun thermometer. Its listeners will remember that. So that was 81.3, and this is 77 degrees. We were talking about cool roofs, and it just occurred to me that the city of Los Angeles that was doing these things is not waiting around. It wants to address temperature issues. And so this is leadership at the local level. 
And you had mentioned how amazing Jerry Brown has been on leading on climate change. And so I was with Gary Griggs at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and he talked about how Governor Brown put him in charge of this new committee on sea level rise. He was the chair because Governor Brown read something about how Antarctica was melting. So putting those all together, um, Jerry Brown said, well, what's happening in Antarctica? There's some new papers out. So he established or he asked for a new committee to be set up in California, which I chaired. This is how things are supposed to be done. People in power read these things, they get the right science expertise, and then they do something. And so to me, that just demonstrated leadership at the highest levels. And so, you know, when it comes to adaptation, it, it might not really be as easy to galvanize the public as it was sort of on the mitigation side. And so Peter Kareva, who's the director of UCLA's Institute of Environment and Sustainability, he talked about how people are so innovative in California but that's been on the mitigation side, and there's money to be made off of that. There's, it's remains to be seen if you can make money off adaptation. There's fortunes to be made off mitigation. People will become billionaires off mitigation by inventing new energy sources. Adaptation is going to be much harder. People are not going to become billionaires off adaptation, and fortunes aren't going to be made. It's going to be a tougher slog, and I'm hoping. I don't know. I'm hoping that the same sort of leadership and, and innovation and sort of, you know, diversity and creativity that embodies California has a spillover effect so that it is leading in adaptation. So that's a big question, Mark. If you can't make a buck off adaptation, then that's where something like real leadership needs to come in into play. And so my second theme would be about the people. The people, of wild, the people of California are a complete wild card. I think the majority are on, on board with the state really acting aggressively on climate change, but I think people's natural behavior can get them into trouble. And if you just think about the wildfires in California, and so John Keeley from USGS, he brought up an interesting point that maybe the wildfires aren't related to climate change, but it's more about where people are living. Something else has changed. And one illustration of what's changed is population growth and the placement of people uh, on the landscape. And this is illustrated by the fact that the biggest fire uh, up in uh, Napa, Sonoma counties was the Tubbs fire that burned September 19th for several days this past year. And that fire uh, was very destructive. A lot of people died, a lot of structures destroyed. There was another fire in 1964 that burned almost the exact same perimeter as the Tubbs fire. The Hanley fire in 64, nobody died, and there were only 29 structures destroyed. And so you have to ask yourself, well, what else has changed? And so people's choices are putting them more at risk, and these risky behaviors are not going to go away as the population of California increases. But, you know, really one of the most profound moments of my entire time there is when I was talking to Jeff Mount on the Sacramento River there is how he, he described how the Native Americans just before the Great Flood of 1861, like within weeks, started leaving the area before the big flooding occurred. And so those early Californians got it. They they knew what was going on in their state and they, they reacted accordingly and I think very responsibly. And I hope we can learn from them. Okay, and so on that note, I am cautiously optimistic. And if you think about the younger generation, and when I mean younger generation, I was talking to some 11-year-olds at the market in Los Angeles. And so they were telling me things that they knew about climate change, and I was blown away by this knowledge. 
My brother talks about climate change, and he, we're always like discussing about ways to try and um, prevent that or try to help out, such as like the greenhouse gases, like because of all the fumes that like build like buildings or factories are creating to create electricity, maybe or anything else that it's uh, hurting the environment and it's like kill, kind of killing the earth. And um, we were thinking that maybe like if it was if we could create electricity powered by natural resources such as water or wind, that would like be more safe for the environment. Okay, so let's hope that those kids grow up to be voting citizens. And finally, the third theme would be just about the politics of this issue. Politics of climate change in California stood out for me almost every conversation I had. Nationally, the Republican Party has just stepped away from reality on the issue of climate change. But at least in California, the Republicans, or at least one Republican, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, played a huge role in climate change policy. And so I loved hearing from Mary Nichols how she used to work with Governor Jerry Brown back in the 70s on smog issues. But then decades later, when Governor Schwarzenegger took power, he invited her to talk about taking a position in his administration. I spent a, an hour in the smoking tent out in the courtyard of the Capitol, uh, you know, with Schwarzenegger puffing on a cigar. Uh, but interestingly, that whole conversation was really about uh, the issue of climate change and Schwarzenegger's interest and determination that California was going to be a leader in addressing this problem. So the details of her being invited into that tent to talk about climate change, I love that story. It really warms my heart to think of that inside that tent, the, this really important conversation was occurring. So, Randy, we were together when Ed Begley Jr. was telling us that powerful story about his dad, who was, of course, the famous Oscar-winning actor Ed Begley Sr. And he was telling us about the very first Earth Day that he attended in 1970. And then I went to Pershing Square, and there was an Earth Day event there. It wasn't a big event, but it was, you know, vocal and what have you. And people, you know, I didn't have any sign or anything. I didn't have a big plan. I didn't stay long. But I went down there and took part in it and then took the bus back home. It was a smoggy day in LA, but I did it because I wanted to do something. You know, I kind of saw my actions as having a connection to the smog, because, and that came from my dad, who was a Republican, by the way, but he was a conservative that liked to conserve. You know, I would complain about the smog. He said, Eddie, I know what you're against. I'm against the smog too, but what are you for? What is your solution? What are you doing to make less smog, to cut down the smog? So he died within a few days of the first Earth Day. So I did a lot of this stuff to honor him as much as anything. And he was a great guy. You know, we, being the son of Irish immigrants, he had lived through the Great Depression. He had, um, you know, we just turned off the lights and turned off the water. We saved string and saved tin foil. He was a very good guy. He never used the word environmentalist, but he was one. He was an incredible guy. And I, him dying within a few days of the first Earth Day was a catalyst for me to do something. And I went out and I bought an electric car. I figured I'd do something. I started recycling. I became a vegetarian, started composting. And composting back then was an ordeal because I lived in an apartment. But I did all these things. You know, whatever I could do, I did. I couldn't afford any solar panels or fancy electric cars. I just bought a, for $950 what's called a Taylor Dunn electric car. It's basically a golf cart with a windshield wiper and a horn. Didn't have a, a steering wheel, it had a tiller. It wasn't exactly a babe magnet. So that was an emotional moment for Ed, and that really resonated with me. It, it 
made environmental issues to sort of transcend politics. And then when I mentioned that to Mary Nichols, she also connected with that theme. There's a generation of people, I think of them as the World War II generation, who didn't think of themselves as environmentalists and certainly weren't politically uh, liberal at all, who, as it turns out, have made a real contribution to the cause of environmental protection because they believed in conservation. So this term conservatives who conserve would apply to Morton Lacretz, the man who donated the building that is the home of the Institute of the Environment at UCLA. His name is also on the Clean Tech Incubator uh, in uh, downtown Los Angeles in the Arts District and on uh, several other important uh, assets, including a, a reserve in the Santa Monica Mountains that's a, a place where uh, kids can go and learn about uh, the nature of the L.A. region. Morton is somebody who um, is an engineer, and basically he just doesn't believe in wasting things. He's the kind of guy, and you know, my, my parents were like this, who uh, didn't throw anything away, turned the lights out when he left the room. Um, so, you know, these people were, in their own way, environmentalists before their time. Okay, and finally, and it was my last interview, and it was at the end of an exhausting and intense week of interviews, and I'm there at the beach in Santa Cruz. I was with Professor Gary Griggs of University of California, Santa Cruz, and he was making a scientific point about sea level rise and at the temperature that ice melts. The shoreline is one of the most important lines on the planet, but it's moving, and it's moving towards us, and it's moving towards us because sea level is rising, and sea level is rising because the planet's getting warmer, and that's doing two things. It's expanding seawater, and it's melting ice. And all ice melts at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. And people seem to appreciate that, or at least understand and say, yeah, it's not a, it's not a political issue. <laughs> we can't be God. <laughs> So I think those were some of the biggest overall things that hit me in this project. And now it's time to go to the scoreboard and look at scores our experts gave the state for each of these five elements. For each of our five elements, we had between two and four experts offering up their scores from one to 10 on how good a job the state is doing in adapting to a changing climate. Then we averaged the scores. Here's what we got. For fire, the average was 6.0. Flood, was 6.5, drought was the lowest at 5.1, temperature was 5.2, and the highest score went to sea level rise at 7.0. Randy, before you and I offer our comments, let's listen to the analysis of our experts, Dr. Peter Kariva, Dr. Tina Watson, and Jonathan Parfrey. Dr. Peter Kariva. Well, I'm, look, I'm looking at their scores, 6, 6.5, 5.1, 5.2, 7. They're all leaning a little bit towards the optimistic side, but they're not really up there to give you too much comfort. And when you think about California, I, I think sort of the, the spirit and culture and the type of people California attracts, 
we're optimists, we're can-do, we, you know, we think we're progressive and we tackle our problems, and I think that's what those scores reflect. More than any other state, we're aware of climate change. It's deniers is a tiny fraction here. We're aware of the threats and risk it provides, and, um, and we know we're aware of it, and we know we have policies, and we, and, and we know we do studies, and we make plans, but to me those scores reflect, wow, we got to do more. So I, I say again that thinking about these scores and thinking about these, these five areas, it's, it is biblical. And you hear that in some of the interviews you did, when you hear like career fire, when you hear things about accelerating sea level rise, when you hear the fact that human civilization has existed along the coastline with stable sea levels, and now it's rising, and every year our estimates are that it's rising faster than we thought the year before. That's biblical. When you realize that when there's a fire, it means that when the rain comes, the landslides and the floods are going to be worse. When you talk about fires in December, that's crazy. Whoever had a third of fires in December? You're not supposed to have fires in December. So all those things coming together, you, you know, it's different than the other problems we've solved. It's different. We like to congratulate ourselves on air pollution. Air pollution is so easy compared to this. Governor Brown has certainly been up at the front um, not just for California, for the whole nation, in, in terms of with no equivocation saying, we have a climate crisis, we need to do something about it. And I can't imagine any leader that's elected in California saying otherwise. They'll all say that. The question for me is that it's not just about the climate crisis and what's going to come and what we have to do in terms of policy. It's about the evidence in front of us that, my God, already things are hammering in us. Do we need a fundamentally different way of thinking about it? Think, think, think about terrorism, homeland security. We never had homeland security until, you know, 9-11. Well, it's all these climate assaults, the fires and the floods and the sea level rise. Is that going to require a commitment and a campaign on that level? Um, I'm not a doom and gloomer. I, I, I do think we'll be able to address it, but I also think it is going to need a commitment and a campaign on that level. And that's going to require leadership. And leadership that doesn't just talk about yeah, we're on the vanguard of climate policy and climate science. We need to be on the vanguard of dealing with what's already assaulting the state. And now Dr. Tina Swanson of the Natural Resources Defense Council. I'm, I'm struck by two things. One is, why are the scores so high? And the other is, why are the scores so low? And I think, I think they're high um, because all of the experts that uh, you spoke with recognize that the science underlying our understanding of what the problem is going to be for climate change as it moves forward is very sound and very solid. We really do have a good understanding and California has led the way in developing and gaining that understanding for the effects of climate change. On the basis of that science, we actually also have a pretty good idea of what is going to need to be done 
to adapt to the changes that climate change is going to um, wreak on us. Um, and so I think that's how the, skies, the, the scores are high. Um, they're reflecting that. I think they're low um, and not you know, eight or nine, uh, reflecting the fact that even though we know what the problem is and we know what we have to do, um, we're actually not yet doing very much of it. And in fact, in some ways, um, we're not doing anything and we're perpetuating some of the same old practices, which in fact are ultimately going to prove to be maladaptive for climate change. So I think the scores are, are telling two different stories. And it's important to recognize what those two different stories are because, in fact, when you see a score like a five or a six, which is totally in the middle of the road, if you just look at it in its, on its face that way, it's actually not particularly informative. I think the state is going to continue to make progress. Jerry Brown has been an, um, a, a really important driving force to get the state as a whole to recognize climate change to continue to advance the science and understanding of what it's going to do to us. Quite frankly, Jerry Brown's predecessor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, was also a very important driving force that advanced California's position to understand what climate change was, how it was happening to the state of California, what its impacts were going to be, um, and in fact, um, really got us, got us started and put California in the position that it is now, which is leading the nation with um, its regional understanding of climate change, um, which is going to position us well to take the actions that we need to take to adapt to it successfully. And lastly, Jonathan Parfrey of Climate Resolve. One of the things that really sticks out is um, that sea level rise got the best score. And I guess the reason that's the case is that um, because maybe people don't think California is going to be hit as hard sea level rise. Um, I kind of don't understand that. Um, I actually think California is doing a better job on drought. There are a lot of initiatives going on on local water supply. Uh, there's a lot of interest in resiliency um, in the state. Uh, I would give the state a better score on drought. On flood, um, I would actually uh, give the state maybe uh, uh, a lower score. Um, what we saw with the Oroville Dam was absolutely frightening. And there are a number of dams in the Sierra Nevada that are simply not equipped to, to deal with even greater uh, flood risk. So on the score for temperature, 5.2, that ranks pretty low. And candidly, I, I think that's the right score. I, I wish it weren't the case. Um, one of my biggest concerns is that the public health departments are simply not prepared to deal with the extreme temperatures that we're anticipating. Well, I think the state of California is taking climate change very seriously. And I see there, that there are real considered efforts to try to deal with this enormous phenomenon that's transforming the state before our eyes. So it's not as if people don't recognize the, the climate fingerprint in California. It's just that it's so big, so enormous, that it's going to marshal so many resources that frankly, I think people are daunted by the challenge. Well, the, the good news 
in California is that the next crop of gubernatorial candidates are all committed to doing their best on the climate front. There's um, great leadership coming out of uh, Mayor uh, Antonio Villaraigosa, who uh, helped transform Los Angeles to become better prepared on climate change. It was his leadership that led to the Cool Roofs Ordinance, for example, in Los Angeles, that led to the funding of Alex Hall's research here in LA. Uh, Mr. Villaraigosa is a committed environmentalist and he'll do a great job. Uh, Mr. Newsom is also uh, a passionate leader on climate change, as is Mr. Chun as well. So whoever becomes our next governor, I not only see a continuation of Governor Brown's programs, you might even see even greater investment in climate action. So that pretty much does it. Actually, Doug, there's one more very important person we haven't heard from yet, and that's Dr. Mark Gold. He's one of the veteran voices of environmentalism for the state of California. He was the first employee of the very successful environmental group, Heal the Bay. Uh, he's now at UCLA as the vice chancellor of the Institute of Environment and Sustainability. And he's got a very different take on the scores that we gathered. I would give California a two when it comes to how well we're doing on adaptation out of 10, um, because there really has been no focus on it whatsoever. We're a big state that has a great deal of heterogeneity in our climate and in our um, uh, topography. And that's the only reason why perhaps it wouldn't be a one. I'm surprised to hear that there are experts out there that are saying that California deserves a six or seven when it comes to adaptation. Um, I don't know how one could say that, seeing how we responded to the drought, how we've responded to wildfires, um, and it just has demonstrated the vulnerability of this state in that, you know, one of the examples I often talk about with my students is that water infrastructure was built based on looking backwards the last hundred years. Nobody's looking at, are you building your water infrastructure for what's going to occur in the next hundred years, using the latest in climate modeling to actually um, uh, help you design what your water infrastructure should be. So we have a whole state that's been completely designed from a water perspective based on the past, not the, not the future. And that, to me, is a huge amount of vulnerability. And one of the things that I have been saying for quite some time is California needs to do a vulnerability assessment on all their water infrastructure and all their electricity infrastructure to ensure that it, it, it's ready for what the future of California and climate is going gonna, is gonna to have before us. And we have not done that. So I actually totally agree with Mark. I was kind of amazed at the apparent disconnect between what we heard and how they scored. The content of what we heard is very dire. It's basically the five horsemen of the apocalypse. They talked about how fire is going to eventually cause the state to end up looking like Baja. In terms of drought, we heard about the freight train of pain that's coming with the loss of the snowpack. For flood, there's this catastrophic arc storm scenario that if it ever hits is going to cause something far worse than Katrina. There's the urban heat effect with temperature for which the cities, as the temperature is increasing, becoming more and more lethal, basically. 
And then last but not least, there was Gary Griggs telling us about how sea level rise is basically going to be the greatest crisis civilization will ever face. Could you get much more dire than what the experts had to say on those five topics? And yet, when they scored them, they all ended up around six or seven. What that all kind of says to me is that most people just don't really want to be an alarmist nowadays. And I don't blame them. (laughs) And yet, we did hear plenty of urgency from all our experts. What's clear to me is the state of California is indeed leading the way in climate adaptation, but there's a lot of work ahead. I'll be interested to hear the comments of our listeners on this special project that has been graciously hosted and sponsored by the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability, and I'm looking forward to my next visit back to California soon. That's all for now, adapters. See you next time on America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap to this very special series, California Adapts. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from some of the best and brightest that the state of California has to offer. I look forward to your feedback on this series. Is California truly a leader? That story is still being written, but I am very encouraged by what I'm hearing. The rest of the country has much to learn from California's leadership. Thanks to all the amazing experts in California who participated in the series. Again, thanks to the generous sponsorship of this series by the UCLA's Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. This three-part series was produced by scientist-turned-filmmaker Randy Olson. For more information on Randy, please see the show notes. I'd also like to thank John Rail for the amazing sound production that he did for this three-part series. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with your friends and colleagues on social media. Those links are also in the show notes. If you are interested in doing a similar podcast project focusing on any number of topics related to climate adaptation, please contact me. My contact information is in the show notes or at the website americadapts.org. If you want to hear more about these adaptation stories, I speak at conferences, events, and to private groups. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work, and I'll see you next time.